Welcome to McGonagall's Chronicles Making Montana Connections. I'm KRTV KXLH anchor and reporter Tim McGonagall. Well, Ken Burns is one of the most prominent and influential documentary filmmakers of our time. His projects on the Civil War, Lewis and Clark, baseball, the National Parks and more help tell the story of America. And by his side, collaborating on many of these stories is author Dayton Duncan. And the pair have joined forces again, along with other notable experts and historians, on The American Buffalo, a two-part, four-hour film set to premiere in October, which Duncan wrote. Duncan is no stranger to Montana. He spent considerable time earlier in his career in the Fort Benton area doing research for a project. And he's often returned to Big Sky Country to help put his fingerprint on Ken Burns' films that have become a part of the fabric of the nation. He was back in Montana recently and paid a visit to the Museum of the Northern Great Plains Complex, which houses the Hornaday Smithsonian Group of Six Buffalo, scientifically known as Bison Bison, and is considered by many to be the most significant collection of an American symbol in the United States. And while in Montana, I had a chance to talk with him about his career, the American Buffalo, and his upcoming book. I hope you enjoy this conversation with author and historian Dayton Duncan. It is a pleasure to have Dayton Duncan with us uh, today. And Dayton, I know a lot of people know you from your work with uh, Ken Burns and the many books that you've written, but uh, I would like to maybe start by having you talk about uh, your early career and what eventually got you to this point, because I know you always weren't a uh, filmmaker or no, I, films. Yeah, I was a, I was a re reporter for a daily newspaper uh, in New Hampshire. So I still consider myself even, I don't consider myself as a historian. I wasn't trained as a historian. I, I actually wasn't even trained as a reporter, but, but it's, I do the same thing, which is I want to, I'm curious. I want to find out things about that have happened or happening now as a reporter or happened in the past if doing a historical documentary. Uh, I interview people um, who can talk about those things. Uh, in the case of like Meriwether Lewis, I never got to interview him. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but, I, but he left, blessedly, he left us the journals, as did Clark and other members. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the research is, is similar to that of a reporter. And then what's also similar is then as a writer, you have to face the challenge of how do you put this all the stuff that you gathered together into something that you know people in the newspaper would read or uh, in a documentary would watch uh, you know with the same objectives you you want it to be factual number right. one um, you need to you know I believe as does Ken that it needs to be something it needs to be told as a story that moves along and brings you through time um, and hopefully keeps people either turning the page or not clicking the dial without jazzing it up or anything. It's just, it needs to be clear. Um, and I am interested in stories that I think also have resonate um, with people's on a human level. Um, because you're telling a story of history, you're telling a human story. Sure. And, and, and part of the objective is to put you in that moment um, and to sort of forget that you know that it's 
in the past, again without jazzing it up, but just to but just to try to put you in the place of those people whose story you're telling. So you can use their voice, their you know their words, right. both if it's in a book or in a, uh, uh, in a written story, you can read what they said and what they wrote in their letters and their journals. And if it's in a film, that you're hearing it read by off camera by very good actors who can bring that to life. And, and it's to, to remind us that what history is, is everyday people, mm -hmm. you know, trying to do something. They're trying to accomplish something and they don't know how it's gonna end. Right. Uh, which is what we are, right? Yeah. We get up in the morning and you might say, well, what's my plan for today or my plan for this month? Or what are, what's my goal? Or what do, would I like to, I want to passionate about something and I want to achieve it, but you don't know <laughs> and you set about to do it right. and you, you don't know if you're going to get there or not. And the people we remember in history generally either succeeded or they, or they, or, or they failed uh, spectacularly, <laughs> right? right. Um, but it's to try to put you back in their shoes and, and their moccasins and um, walk with them and listen to them and, uh, and maybe learn from their story. And the other thing that, I, that we try to do in our documentaries, in which I would do as a reporter and I would do a, writing books, nonfiction books, about mm -hmm. moments or people in history, is you want to be fair to them. At the same time, you don't want to over-glamorize them. Right. You want to present them as they were, people who had their own foibles, their own failings, you know, warts and all, uh, and you need to be truthful. And that's not just about the individuals, but about the events themselves. You can't, you know, uh, over-glorify it or, or sugarcoat it. At the same time, you need to, uh, you need to have it to be fair to what actually occurred. It's only if we face up to that, mm -hmm. a truthful recounting of our history, do we have any hope of maybe making the future better, I, I believe. And only a truly great nation uh, it would be capable of saying, we want to make sure that we don't forget the mistakes we made. And right behind me, right was one of the biggest uh, mistakes and human tragedies, as well as tragedy with the, of what we can do to the natural world, is Exhibit A. You know, who are we as Americans? Are we, are we capable in as uh, as we as our nation expanded of doing tremendous damage to the natural world? We took a species that existed in uncountable numbers and at least 30 million of them in 1800 on the Great Plains. Mm -hmm. And in the space of less than a century, reduced them to fewer than a thousand. And that takes some, you know, that yeah. takes some work and that's a pretty spectacular um, failure and uh, tragedy, particularly for the native people who for 10,000 years had relied on them for sustenance, 
physical sustenance, food and shelter, but also spiritual um, sustenance. So are, is, is that part of who we are? Yes, that is. And in our National Park film, it's the same, same thing. We're willing to take a, a beautiful canyon and maybe dam it and, and uh, ruin it. Or you'd look at a mountain and say, I wonder, boy, I bet there might be some valuable minerals there. Let's just tear it up. Or they'd look at you know, pristine forest and say, how many board feet of lumber can we get out right. of that? But we are also um, capable, history can show us, sometimes capable of saying, no, we're not going to do that anymore, or we're going to stop doing that, or we'll draw the line here and save something and, pre and preserve it. As Wallace Stegner said, we are the most dangerous species on the planet. And every other species, even the Earth itself, has cause to fear what we, you know, uh, our power to exterminate. That's a that's an indictment. Yeah. But he but he then also adds, but we are also the only species when it chooses to do so, is capable of saving what it might otherwise destroy. So that, I think that summarizes. Um, Part of what we try to get across in sure. this film, and of course, uh, we and we quote Wallace Stegner mm -hmm. in it to help us along, because he's so articulate. Um, but um, that's what the story of the buffalo is: um, our power to exterminate, and our sometimes our eagerness almost sure. to do that, our heedless, or at least our heedless. Uh, concentration on other things makes our power to uh, destroy and exterminate uh, things um, on a grand scale. Uh, at the same time, in our second episode, then we try to say, but there were some people, let us introduce you to them, mm -hmm. who at the turn of the last century decided, this has gone too far, and what can we do to try to save this magnificent species? which is now our national mammal, from disappearing forever. And this display here, to me, is like an essential and important artifact in telling that story. It, it sounds like the, the American buffalo is just the ultimate comeback story, I guess, maybe to, to quote a, a sports Well, it, 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 it is a big comeback story, and... Uh, the part that we, because we deal with history and not current events, as we're not, we, we deal with historical documentaries, but not current events. Mm. They were brought back from the brink of extinction, and there's now, you know, estimates are at least, and probably more, than 350,000 uh, okay. buffalo in the United States. But for them to be really the comeback kid, and for us to actually feel that we could pat ourselves on the back, on the back as a, as a people and, and as, a, as a nation, there's things going on now that we, uh, we mention at the tail end of our film, but is the act three of two acts. You know, take them to the brink of extinction, save them from the brink of extinction, and act three is and can you actually restore them in greater numbers, in larger spaces, and particularly with the people 
who had coexisted with them and relied on them so intimately for 10,000 years, which is to say on native reservations. And that's going on now, and we talk about that in our sort of outro, mm -hmm. uh, and because we don't know how that's going to turn out. Yeah. 20, 30 years from now, we could, uh, his, historical documentarians like us might say, oh, look, now, that is a great comeback story, yeah. isn't it? Or, well, you saved them from extinction, but, you know, you could say we saved them uh, from extinction because there are four or five in 25 different zoos, mm -hmm. or they're reproducing enough that uh, being raised by cattle. But until they can be returned to the plains in ways that helps not only them do what they like to need to do the best to be to really be buffalo, um, but they can restore the prairie too because they were they they were the what was called the key is called the keystone species. Their grazing habits and everything made the Great Plains the Great Plains, and um, and. Uh, and, and there are people and organizations and reservations mm -hmm. that are trying to, uh, in certain places, in large enough spaces, let the bison be bison again. Okay. Well, I know that uh, you know, when people think of the bison, they think of uh, places like Montana, uh -huh. North Dakota, South Dakota. Yeah. But uh, I, I think you said it when you were in Lewistown, uh, these guys used to roam all over the country. There, there is evidence, mm -hmm. um, both, um, you know, dug up evidence, but there are also now writ there are written accounts that show that the American buffalo at one time, at the time of first contact by uh, Europeans, there were buffalo in Florida. There were uh, a, a, a early Jamestown settler uh, going up the Potomac River to what is now Washington, D.C., got off his boat and saw a herd of buffalo. There were buffalo near the Great Lakes. The Spanish uh, explorers, you know, back in the 1530s and the 40s in what's now Texas and then the Texas Panhandle and Kansas encountered buffalo herds of astonishing numbers. French explorers coming down the Mississippi saw them. So yeah, they were, you know, so we don't know, we have no way of knowing how many there were. Mm -hmm. We do know that like the colonial uh, assembly in Georgia in 1757 passed a law making it illegal to hunt buffalo in certain parts of the colony. Okay. And we also know that apparently didn't work because by, you know, uh, later uh, naturalists going through that part of Georgia said, well, I've met people who talk about seeing buffalo. I'm not seeing any. They seem to be gone. And Daniel Boone crossing the Appalachian Mountains, following what's called a buffalo trace, the Cumberland Gap, seeing, he said, there's more buffalo here than there are cattle back in Virginia. Um, but by the early 1800s, there were virtually no buffalo east of the Mississippi. So we know what was going on. That right. you know they were that wasn't compatible to what was the kind of settlement that was going on. But by the early 1800s, there's still 30 million 
buffalo by most estimates mm -hmm. on the Great Plains, which is their natural, uh, their best habitat. Um, and uh, and 80 some years when Lewis and Clark, that'd be when Lewis and Clark came through mm -hmm. Montana, which all the, they saw buffalo everywhere. And they gave up trying to count them finally on their way back right. on the Yellowstone. Um, and 85 some years later, or less than 85 years later, after the railroad reached Montana and the hide hunters who had destroyed the southern herd, you know, virtually exterminated all them, now were able to have greater access to the northern plains. And in three years, they were gone up here too. And in 1886, when William T. Hornaday came, it took him three months to kill 24 buffalo to make exhibits that would show what the buffalo once was sure. to future generations. And he said, we got here just in the nick of time because the 40 or 50 that might still be left in Montana, I think they'll be gone by the next year. And the next year, an expedition from the New York uh, Museum of uh, Natural History came and they spent three months and didn't see a single buffalo. Yeah. So that's the you know that's the trajectory. Um, and um, but the, but Montana but they but they but they once stretched in places that I never thought mm -hmm. uh, I was not aware of. Yeah. I was surprised to, you know to find them in Washington D.C. and Georgia and Florida. <laughs> yeah. Well, in your uh, research and working on this uh, documentary. Uh, what, especially in, in this area, we're doing this interview in Shoto County in Fort uh -huh. Benton. Uh, what surprised you, uh, if anything, I guess, about the, their, their uh, presence here? Was there anything? I mean, they play, played a huge role uh, before people were, were here in this area. Well, people were here, I mean, but they were the indigenous people. Sure, the indigenous. But one of the things that I learned is that this part of Montana, the different tribes, um, for whom this was home, at the same time, they weren't necessarily living in permanent villages in this part. There'd be the Blackfeet, mm -hmm. you know, uh, up in north northeastern part, the Crows to the south and the and and the east, the uh, what were used to be called the Grovant, the uh, Ani, mm -hmm. uh, the Lakotas, the Assiniboines. Uh, there were lots of tribes, that even from uh, from North, what's now North Dakota, the Hadatsas and those. They they would converge here to hunt buffalo because there were so many. And one of the reasons there were so many is that there was a contested area by, you know, I don't know, ten, twelve different tribes of saying this is where the this is where we go to hunt buffalo. But that also caused conflict between the tribes. And in those areas in the Northern Plains and the Southern Plains where there was that conflict, it meant that it was harder just to go out for the whole summer and bring the, the whole villages out because it was too dangerous. And in those places, the buffalo were particularly, uh, so, so the, there are Cinnaboyne teepee rings and there are different tribes that were moving through but they didn't come and, and set up villages in the way that they might on the Missouri River with the permanent earth lodges or other places where the Blackfeet, for instance, would come back mm -hmm. 
to the foothills of the um, of the uh, of the Rockies up where glaciers or the Shoshones would come over or the uh, Salish would come over from their part of Montana to, to these plains but they would they would come and then they would leave and they'd leave their mark obviously and, and they were you know astonishingly familiar with every every stream and every uh, you know hill and every landmark uh, and knew their way around um, but um, but that's one of the reasons that there were there were so many and one of the reasons why Lewis and Clark as they traveled through Montana in the summer of 1805 didn't they saw signs of native people, mm -hmm. teepee rings, sometimes, you know, fires that were recently extinguished, sure. um, and, and other evidence of, but they didn't encounter any the way that they had coming up the, the Missouri River, um, you know, farther down, and particularly with the Mandan Hidatsas, and certainly not the way that they encountered native people you know, uh, living along the banks of the Columbia River uh, when they you know, reached there. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Lewis and Clark, and I know this uh, latest film, I, the press that I saw said it took four years to produce it, but uh, in a way, it's kind of been building up yeah, during this, some of those this, other uh, this, this, programs. This, uh, this particular biography, if you will, of the, of the American buffalo uh, had a very long gestation period. <laughs> And during that gestation period, which is probably at least 30 years, um, included telling part of the story when we did the Lewis and Clark film, doing part of the story when we did our, our film on the American West, doing part of the story when we did our film series about the National Park Service. And even in 1998, I wrote up a very detailed proposal to do this film. And we, we were getting ready to take it to PBS and say, you know, can we get the funding to do this and have it come out in 2003? But we then pulled back because we decided, oh, we need to tell the story of the first automobile trip across the United States, which occurred in 1903. And 2003 is the centennial. That'll be a good time to do a film that's called Horatio's Drive. And then we did other films. So this has been something, you know, on our to-do list that just kept sort of moving back and back as other projects that seemed to have uh, needed to be done more quickly, but we never gave up on it. And I'm glad we didn't, very glad we didn't. It's a very, uh, uh, it's, it's a story very um, deep in my own heart. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm very glad that we got uh, finally to do it. And as Kenneth said, I think we, I think the delaying it made, made made it a better film because, um, you know, hopefully we'd like to think we get better each film we make is a little bit we've done where we've learned things that, uh, about our filmmaking that we can improve upon. But also, um, you know, because there are exciting things, as I said, going on about right now sure. about the restoration of Buffalo to more places, to larger spaces, and to and to reconnect them with the people for whom they've been so important in ways that weren't going on when we were when we might have made the film and so while we can't necessarily tell the current story because that's not what we do but we can set the table 
for people who you know to want to know why is you know what, you know is this important or not? Yes, it is. If you look at the hopefully, if you watch our film, you'll see just how uh, intertwined the the uh, the stories of native people and the buffalo are. I really believe that you cannot you you cannot understand the sweep of the history of native people in in what's now the United States without trying to come to grips with the story of of the buffalo and 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 conversely you can't tell the story uh, accurately about the 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 bison without without coming to grips with how intertwined they were with the lives of Native people for thousands and thousands, 600 generations. Mm -hmm. And then how dramatically it changed, not just for the bison, but for Native people, how intertwined that, that, that was in the space of you know, the latter half of the 1800s, as Dan Flores, a uh, very renowned environmental historian says in our film, this was the greatest slaughter of wildlife in a compressed period of time in the history of the world. There's nothing that, com that com compares to it. And that's a story that needs to be told and remembered. At the same time, what needs to be told and remembered is that different people on some reservations in New Hampshire and the Panhandle of Texas and other places were able somehow to save enough to keep them from disappearing forever <laughs> and dedicated people started a movement that at least got them back from the brink of extinction and now there are even more people involved in trying to in, in trying to really do the real job keep that going. Of, of keeping that going and expanding it so that it's not just, you know, we've saved them by saving, you know, uh, you know, a couple thousand into something. There's, I, I'm not suggesting there's going to be 30 million bison roaming the plains again. Right. That, I, you know, I, that's just not going to happen. Sure. But there are, is the possibility that in certain parts of the Great Plains, those portions you know, large portions can be restored with the reintroduction of bison, and more particularly for native people, uh, the reconnection with a you know with a, a decent-sized herd of bison is important to them for food, you know, security. It's important for them economically, but most importantly, it's a reconnection of something that is so deep in their blood memory and in their traditions and in their history that, that uh, it, it can do a lot of good um, if, it's, if it moves forward. And I know that uh, you have a new book, Blood Memory, Tragic Decline and Improbable Resurrection of the American Buffalo, and yeah. I understand that's... World's longest subtitle. <laughs> going to be coming out uh, kind of uh, yeah, around the same time. Yes, yeah, so it, it'll actually, its official release will be probably in November, okay. early November, shortly after the release of the, of the film. But basically, it takes all the, the research and, and the story that's wrapped into 
uh, a four-hour documentary, but it includes a lot more information, a lot more of the things that uh, the different people that we interviewed had to say, mm-hmm. um, and therefore it tells a, a you know an even fuller story. You know, we had we you know I've been doing this with Ken for thirty years and. Things that I write drop to the editing floor as they have to, mm-hmm. to squeeze it down into two hours uh, for for an episode. And he always pats me on the shoulder and says, "They can go in the companion book." <laughs> so I'm very I'm always happy when when we have that. And this one in particular has has just uh, whole characters and other things that you know we just couldn't we couldn't um, contain in our film. So watch the film and read the book. That's I like that. I'll, <laughs> watch the film and read the book. Yeah, that's a that's a direct order. And and you mentioned Ken Burns. You've been working with him. I think you said for thirty yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he said during your uh, visit in Lewistown that uh, this is your last project with. Yeah, him. I had you know I had a long to do list. I, I'm the luckiest person on earth. Mm-hmm. And for thirty some years, uh, I produced and wrote. Uh, 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 I produced films that I would write, and I wrote films that I would produce on topics that I was particularly interested in. I mean, you can't beat that. Mm -hmm. And um, I like to say it was sort of, I would go into self-directed postgraduate studies on a topic that I was, uh, that I was either already passionate about or very curious about. And I had a long list that I gave to him when we were friends and I was writing books and he was right, making his early films. And he'd read my drafts and I would come in and look at his early things. Um, and I su- had a long list of story ideas that I suggested to him. Um, and he finally, the first one was on the West. And he said, if I'm going to do this, I want you to be part of it. So I had no intention of becoming a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And then I went and came into that side door and, you know, set up set up a set up house, I guess. Uh, but the buffalo uh, was had been sitting there on that to-do list for a long time. Um, and uh, and I don't have any others, you know, uh, any other outliers that I feel that passionate about. And I, I would like to go back to having some time now to uh, there are some book projects that that have been sitting over there in the mm-hmm. shelf, and I want to do that. And I want, I don't have the time and the energy at my age mm-hmm. to do them both. It sounds like, though, uh, a car- for a career alongside Ken Burns, this is a pretty good way to to go out to this draw is, the curve. If if, <laughs> if I, I don't want to mix metaphors and species, but this is my swan song. <laughs> uh, but it's it's a it, my swan song. Is uh, is a buffalo song, and uh, and I'm so happy um, that uh, that uh, we got we got it done, uh, and I'm very proud of it, and um, and I hope that uh, I hope my mom in heaven is, didn't hear me just say that, uh, but um, but it comes from the heart, and I hope that shows. Looking forward to seeing it uh, in its full form. And thank you very much for taking time. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with author and historian Dayton Duncan. He served as the writer for the upcoming Ken Burns film, The American Buffalo, and has also written a companion book called Blood Memory 
to be released in conjunction with the film, which premieres on PBS October 16th and 17th. I invite you to subscribe to McGonagall's Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review of the program. You can also follow the podcast on social media. And I'll be back soon with another interesting guest with a Montana Connection. Until then, for McGonagall's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections, I'm Tim McGonagall.